Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Pearl. Based in Auckland, Mark is an engineering lead at MYOB New Zealand, a provider of accounting and business management solutions. Mark has been doing software development for most of his life and is also a frequent conference speaker, blogger, and now a book author. You can learn more about Mark and read what he has to say on his blog at blog.markpearl.co.za, and you can follow him on Twitter at markpearlcoza. Mark is the author of the LeanPub book, Getting Started with Mob Programming, a practical, pragmatic, and opinionated guide for co-located teams. In his book, he talks about the value of mob, pro- mob programming and software development and how it can lead to better outcomes for teams and projects, including improved productivity, quality, and return on investment. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's professional interests, his career, his books, or his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub a little bit. So thank you, Mark, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Lynn. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where you come from and uh, how you first got interested in, in software and computers and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. Um, well, um, I'm not from uh, New Zealand originally. I'm uh, born and bred in South Africa uh, and I've spent the majority of my life in South Africa. I've only recently moved across to Auckland. Um, I've been involved in software. Well, my my early memories of writing software were back in junior school uh, on an old XT, uh, QBasic. And I think for most kids, when they start out, they just want to write a game. Uh, And that's that's what got me uh, hooked. Um, professionally, I started writing software straight out of high school. I got my my first job as a programmer uh, three weeks before I graduated. Uh, I went to an interview uh, that I saw on an IRC chat uh, channel saying, hey, there's this company uh, looking for programmers. If you're interested, rock up. Uh, I was young and naive. I uh, rocked up to the interview. The two people in the room looked at me and they said, so uh, how long have you been programming in Visual Basic? And I said to them, I have no idea what Visual Basic is. And uh, they said, you do know you've applied for a job as a junior Visual Basic programmer. And I said, well, how hard can that be? It's just a language. And uh, 20 minutes later, I had my first job. And uh, it's wow. been great ever since, yeah. Um, and uh, you eventually got into um, extreme programming, or sorry, yeah, extreme programming. Um, and yep. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, you know, for those listening who might not be familiar what what that is, what was your introduction to it like? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I was late to the game for uh, extreme programming or XP. Um, I, I was first really introduced to it about six years ago and um, the way I found out about it was I had been doing my own thing for for a while uh, running my own software company and I just got into a rut I needed a change and I started looking around for various opportunities and I came across a small uh, bespoke consultancy called Driven Software and they interviewed me they uh, uh, there was alignment and values. They seemed to be doing some very interesting things. And um, I started with them as a uh, programmer. 
And the first day I rocked up, they told me, well, we're going to do this thing called pair programming. I had absolutely no clue what pair programming was, but um, I gave it a go. had an absolute blast. I learned so much that first day at work. Uh, I learned so many things in um, just how how to look at software. Uh, I was introduced to test room development. I was introduced to user stories. I was introduced to a whole bunch of things that um, I guess at the time were still growing in popularity in South Africa, uh, but really made a big difference on how I look at software. And, and XP's been for me, um, the secret source ever since. Not not so much the practices. Uh, I think w- one one of the things I talk about in my book is how mob programming in my mind is still XP. Even though if you look at the articles around XP, they they'll never make mention of mob programming. But it's it's really the the principles behind XP that that I like to drive uh, how I make software, and that's that's been my involvement with it. And so what would you say um, distinguishes XP from, you know, uh, other approaches to writing software? Um, so it, I, th- I think it's a, a really interesting question. Um, th- there's been a, a real boom in agile methodologies uh, for a while now. And I think a lot of the agile methodologies that came around or that were gaining popularity were, were mainly process oriented. So they were, they were mainly at how teams change their interactions with each other, either via standups or uh, scrums and estimation and stuff like that. But they, they, they didn't really tackle the construction side. Um, what, I, what I really liked about XP was it, it was more for the engineer hands-on. It was driving uh, technical excellence, not only interactions. Um, and that, that, for me, has been a, a big part of XP compared to um, Scrum or Kanban or any sort of uh, lean approach. Um, I think it's also interesting that those practices like Scrum keep adopting, and um, as they advance, they they start to adapt a lot of the the XP practices. So while I'm not in a, a Scrum team right now, I am aware of people that do Scrum, and you know, in the literature that they're looking at, they're also looking at um, pairing, they're looking at uh, testing, and and those sort of things. I think that's good. Um, but for me, XP was really for the software engineer or software craftsman. And um, uh, my next question is about computer science and studying computer science. Um, I see from LinkedIn that you've had a couple of stints studying computer science at university. Um, And one of the reasons I ask, it's actually kind of a theme of this podcast where um, I would say about half of the people who end up in software formally studied uh, computer science or something like it at university and half haven't. And um, the question I'd like to ask is, uh, if you were starting out right now, say you just graduated from high school now, would you advocate that someone like you go to do computer science? And I, I get, I'm gathering from your story that the, the answer is going to be a little bit more complicated in your case. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, eh? Um, so uh, 
maybe I, I can share a bit of my experience in in software. I, I, I mentioned that uh, I got my first job as a programmer um, straight out of high school. And my my father is an academic. He's a, a lecturer at a university. And when his son came home and told him very proudly that uh, he had his first job, uh, my father um, was a little disappointed and very concerned and felt quite strongly that I needed to get a formal education, a, a, a university degree behind my name whilst I was going to be hindered in my progress. And he convinced me to, to go to university. Um, I, I lasted university the first time around for two years and I, I was extremely frustrated. I was doing very well in uh, the courses that I found relevant to to my passion, um, but I also found a huge disconnect uh, between what they were trying to instill and what I had found useful in a professional capacity. And so two years into university, I, I ended up dropping out and um, doing my own thing. Do I value a degree? Um, well, I I ended up uh, several years later going back to university and finishing a degree via correspondence. It took me uh, almost the better part of a decade to do that. Um, part of the reason for that was that I I hate giving up on things and I maybe I felt a little uh, um, almost like imposter syndrome that I didn't have a computer science degree yet I was creating software. In, in hindsight, when I, when I got the degree, I thought to myself, but I still know nothing. Uh, what, what has this actually taught me? And so I would probably say if, if I could redo things, I would have a lot more focused learning. I, I think depending on the university, there's either value or not, but at the institutions where, where I, I worked, I, I don't don't see a lot of value in that qualification. And th in fact, I think the only thing that a degree proved to me was that I had endurance. Um, so I think people with degrees make great employees. They don't necessarily, um, they're not necessarily the best engineers. Uh, some of the most talented people I've ever worked with uh, have no qualifications behind their names. Uh, that's a really great answer. Um, thanks for that. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the observations that I've heard people make that seems very practical is, you know, I mean, it's hard to know when you're 18, say, and deciding, you know, what to do. But if you do want to work for a big company like Google or Apple or something like that, then everyone I've spoken to, I think, says the best decision you can make, you know, given all the unknowns is to get a university degree. Um, and I would imagine that actually part, part of the reason for that is what is what you're talking about. Mostly people, when they say that they focus on the sort of there's a set of set of shared assumptions about what you know and what you've been trained in that the company can can make um, uh, when they know you've got a computer science degree. But it's actually very interesting uh, observation too that one of the things you can tell from someone who's done a self-directed long-term course of education that they've completed uh, is that they do have whether they enjoyed it or not. Um, uh, they, uh, they were stubborn. Everybody has to be stubborn to get something like that done. Um, it, and, uh, and, uh, it does show something, uh, along those lines that, as you say, in a kind of loaded way, makes you a good, <laughs> makes you a good employee. Um, yeah. uh, I actually have a 
a pretty specific question that it's kind of selfish. I actually have two selfish questions for you. The first is that I saw you tweeted recently about an MYOB hack day where a team integrated something called the partner dashboard into the Amazon Echo. And yep. yeah, the reason the reason I want to ask you about that is um personally I'm a little bit of a skeptic about the role that smart speakers and digital assistants will play in our day-to-day lives in the future. And it's not so much that I don't see that there's value there, like especially if you're doing something with your hands, having a digital assistant that you can talk to and can provide you with instructions and feedback really useful. There's the sort of fun, you know, there are games you can play with Alexa and, you know, other digital assistants. Um, and of course there's the Star Trek, you know, computer, do this, do, do X, give, yep. yeah, do X, do Y, give me this answer. Um, but it's the hype around it that gets my spidey sense tingling a bit. But at the same time, I'm worried that there's something I'm missing. And I was really curious how um, something that your company might be working on. And I, I confess to not understanding it all that well, but you know, something like how does a partner dashboard, can you explain a little bit about what that is and how it can be usefully integrated with something like an Echo? So uh, the the honest fact is um, it probably is a very poor experience. Um, The partner dashboard really is a one of our systems that we provide to accountants for managing MYB's products and their clients. So it is literally a list of uh, customers with data on it. And um, it would be extremely unusual for somebody to to get value from using an Echo to to navigate that. I think maybe if somebody had a disability, uh, there would be value in it. But um, for the average accountant, it's probably one of the more inefficient ways of uh, getting information. Why why did we do it? Uh, We did it because we could. And um, we did it to geek out. Um, so often we get attracted to creating software um, because it's fun. And then when it becomes our, our job, we forget to have fun. And fun sometimes just means fooling around and poking things and seeing how they work. And so really the objective of uh, that hackathon for that team was to have fun with an echo and find a reasonable excuse to relate it to work. Um, but there was no, I don't think there was any immediate intention of um, making that an experience that we would release to the rest of the world. Um, the the guys that were involved in that, they, they tend to be um, kind of play around in that space. The, the one guy, Lucas, is currently working on uh, controlling his house via an echo. He has uh, a desk that he tells what height it should be and it adjusts its height that he's built from scratch and he just really enjoys that. And we think it's uh, fun and just makes him a geek. So so th- from from that perspective, uh, that's why we did the hackathon. Um, from the echo and kind of the hype cycle about it, I mean, this is what we see with technology day in and day out. Um, the, the latest and greatest thing comes out. Everybody jumps on it. They try different things. Everyone's talking about it. But it, it's really um, limited use. And then we start getting back to reality and figuring out where is this actually appropriate to use or not. And we'll we'll see that with the Echo as well. I think it'll, it'll eventually uh, level out. 
um, fun at work, I think, is something when I was researching uh, for this interview, I noticed is, I think, important to you and having a, a positive work environment um, with great colleagues. And I was wondering, did that interest come out of you naturally? Or did you have perhaps an experience where you saw the contrast between working at a place where fun and <laughs> having a good time is important and one where it was not? Yeah. Um, so one of the roles that I've had um, of my career is as a, well, on my business card, it said a uh, software engineering coach. But basically what we did is we would go into teams that were uh, at various levels of dysfunction and try and help them to get back to a healthy state. So I've worked in teams that were having very little fun. And to be honest, you couldn't pay me enough money to um, stay in that environment for a prolonged period of time. Um, some of these teams I've seen where they get uh, individuals in it earn uh, amazing amounts of money, and that's really a compensation for them feeling fulfilled. Um, for me, money is important, but it's not the driver uh, for everything I do. Um, human interaction, feeling part uh, connected to people, feeling um, part of a bigger thing, feeling like what we do makes a difference is, is just as important as what I get paid. Um, and so creating a healthy environment where we can push boundaries, where we feel safe to have fun and work hard at the same time is, is really important to me because I believe that um, it's great to wake up in the morning and just love what you do. Um, nobody wants to be in a place where they wake up and they want to stay in bed. Uh, and I think if you're in that position, you should seriously relook at um, – what you're doing for employment because it's about time for a change. And I've been there. Uh, I've had situations where I've just absolutely hated what I'm doing. Uh, it has an impact on my professional uh, career. It has an impact on my personal life. And um, I don't want to go back there again. Uh, thanks for that that answer. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I know what it's like to be there as well. Um, and I think probably everybody listening does. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, if you've had the opportunity to work in an environment where in an, in a non-artificial way, having, placing an importance on people's happiness and being positive, you know, you, you know what the difference is. Yeah. So for me, the word there that's really important is, um, artificial. Um, I think often we, we mix fun up with doing fun things and, um, it's often is, in my mind, just artificial fun. The teams don't really care about each other. They do fun things, but there there isn't that connection. Uh, for me, I'm wanting just to deal with raw people that uh, really, really connect. Um, and I guess that's also a bit about why I'm attracted to mob programming is, is you get that connection through through working with people. Yeah, it's interesting. I For some reason, I've been thinking a little bit about that general subject lately, but, you know, I think we've all, I mean, especially if you're a bit of a geek, you've had the experience where a certain type of person sees you doing something and they're like, Hey man, school's over. Why do you want to sit and read? You know, why are you torturing <laughs> yeah. yourself? Why don't you go out and have fun? And it's like, all I want to do right now is sit here and read the sword of Shannara for the fourth time. 
um, <laughs> um, uh, that's probably an obscure reference by now, but, um, uh, you know, people do have different ways of having fun, obviously. And for some people, what looks like work to the other person is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. I, I have this conversation with my wife often cause, um, I'll, I will go home and I'll be coding and, um, she'll say, why are you working? I'm like, I'm not working. I'm, I'm playing around. And for her, um, in her background, that division between work and play is separated. For me, I, I was lucky enough to do something that I enjoyed doing and I get paid to do that, which is great. Um, but I'd probably be doing it even if I wasn't paid for it. And, um, that can be a challenge. So to keep balance is important, but it's also great just to love what you do. And um, I think we've got to respect each individual and what drives them and allow them to have that in whatever ratio is appropriate for them. Speaking of um, having fun, um, my second selfish question is about John Oliver. Um, for those I don't, I don't, this might totally, if you don't, if you haven't heard about this, this might totally not be a question you, you can answer, but, um, the comedian, John Oliver, who's got a show called last week tonight for anyone who isn't aware has a habit of getting into beefs with Australia or with, sorry, with, um, politicians from New Zealand. Um, oh, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, for example, there was a time when a, um, a politician got hit in the face by a rubber dildo and he devoted like five minutes of his um, uh, show to that. And then recently the prime minister, Bill English um, was uh, embroiled in, in some kind of, I, I would imagine mini scandal um, where I think in during his campaigning, he used an Eminem song. Um, yes. And of course, um, John Oliver couldn't help, but do the accent and call him Eminem. Um, which is something I'm personally familiar with. I use my own name as a way, Len App, as a way of testing whether someone's from Australia or New Zealand. I used to be able to tell naturally, but now I have to do that. But, you know, Len App becomes Lean Eep. Anyway, so the Eminem scandal. Um, and uh, then, then, of course, the politician made the perhaps mistake of saying John Oliver isn't always that funny. And then, of course, John Oliver's like, what do you think I'm going to do now? Um, so I guess my question after that preamble is... Um, is this something that people in New Zealand care about? <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. Um, well, first from the politics side, um, coming from South Africa, which has its own flavor of uh, politics going on and just some insane stuff, uh, New Zealand seems to be very tame. Um, also, just what's weird about being a really an immigrant in this country is this country's built out of immigrants so especially in in the teams that I work in we're we're lucky if we come across a kiwi uh that's almost an exception to the norm most of the people I work with are um also immigrants um do new zealanders care about something there is one thing they take very seriously, and that's rugby. And that is one thing South Africans take very seriously as well. The only problem is Kiwis have been beating us at rugby way longer than we've been beating them. And so it's it's nice to, to move to a country where now I'm a world champion. Uh, 
that's always a, a plus side. But other than rugby and being outdoors, they're pretty chilled, hey? They um, they don't get worked up about too many things. It's a really, really nice place to be. And I re- we, we've been really enjoying it. Um, our outdoor life has just skyrocketed. It's it's a beautiful place. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I guess um, I do then have to ask, have you changed your rugby allegiance? Oh, this is so tough. No. <laughs> I wish I could. Uh but it, the green and gold is too deep. Um, so the green and gold is for for those in the rest of the world that don't know uh, rugby too well. The green and gold is the Springboks, which is the South African team. The the All Blacks are the New Zealand team, and I I can't remember the last time we beat them. Um, I kind of sit on the fence now because I can probably claim it either either way. Uh, but I think when South Africa plays New Zealand, I'm so, still supporting South Africa. But when New Zealand plays anybody else, I'm, I'm behind New Zealand all the way. It's really interesting, actually. You reminded me I worked in a, an office in London with a lot of uh, expats um, and what that community is like. But one thing happened that was unexpected one year was um, Australia got into the World Cup um, for soccer, and it was an Australian company. So... You know, although I was in in London, most of my colleagues were you know Aussies and Kiwis and South Africans and you know people from all over, but including you know people from France and Italy because we worked throughout Europe. And man, was it intense! Um, yep, we stopped. I mean, work stopped. They bought TVs for the whole office um, because they knew <laughs> people were going to be preoccupied with the World Cup anyway. And when Australia was playing, the EAs roved around with carts of beer. Um, you know, right in the right in the office, and yeah, I saw people. I mean, in a way, it's, it's, if you've been in a place for a short time, it's maybe not that hard. But the longer you've been in a place, um, the more pressing questions of allegiance can become. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I can totally relate. And uh, beer is another thing that is uh, very popular here, uh, and goes hand in hand with uh, sport. So. Uh, sounds like we've had pretty similar experiences. Um, I, I think when we when we moved from South Africa and we were looking at uh, different options, the the typical options that come up it's either the UK, Canada, New Zealand, or Australia. And I, at the time, I I just couldn't do it to my kids to move to Australia, uh, so it ended up being New Zealand. Uh, which is ironic because MYB is predominantly owned by Australians. So I spend most of my time working with Australians, and it turns out they're pretty decent. But um, at the time that we were making the choice, <laughs> I was like, no, I, I just uh, I can't. I will um, not press you on that. <laughs> <laughs> but I love you, Australia, now. <laughs> um, having only been there once uh, <laughs> myself, I wouldn't want to... <laughs> I've just offended like millions of people, I'm sure. No, I, I know I know what you're saying. Um, uh, moving on to the subject of your book, um, before we talk about um, mob programming and your opinions about it, I thought we could frame the discussion a little bit um, by my asking you about Tuckman's model of group development. Can yep. you maybe talk a little bit about that and why it's important to you? Sure. So... The, 
a lot of people don't know that uh, it is Tuckman's model, but uh, they'll recognize the pattern. And the pattern really goes as follows: when when somebody joins or joins a team or joins a group, the the group goes through uh, some recognizable stages, and the stages are um, forming, storming, norming, and performing. And in my experience, whenever uh, somebody add uh, joins a group, the entire group goes through those stages. So, so what are those stages? Well, forming is is when everyone's still polite. You you don't know where you sit in the social scheme, and so you're just being very polite to everyone you work with. The storming stage is when you start to push social boundaries. You're trying to figure out what's appropriate and what isn't, and that can be quite a a point where there's a lot of friction in a group. And at some stage, if a group is able to progress through that, they start to norm, which means that they've figured out the social boundaries and now they've really figured out how to work together. And ideally, you want to move from norming through to performing, which is when there's accelerated uh, performance because everybody's gelled, um, there's no disruptions, they can focus at the work and they can get things out the door. So um, that for me is Tuckman's model and I see it in mob programming every single time. It, it really, for me, is a, a model that very closely maps to reality most of the time. And yeah, with that, with that structure, um, what is an, an understanding of the progress that, you know, this, that things move through stages? Can you talk a little bit about what pro, mob programming really is? I mean, what does it, you've got some videos online that I found, but, um, you know, what does it, what does it look like? What does it involve yep. doing? Okay. Yeah, sure. So essentially mob programming, a originated from, uh, extreme programming and in extreme programming this concept of pair programming was advocated and the idea of pair programming was two people working in front of a single computer on a single problem um, mob programming and in my mind um, somebody to keep an eye out in the mob programming circles is uh, Woody Zuehl who is also on Lean Pub you can get his book and I really recommend people that are interested in the topic to to read Woody's book as well, is, well, why do we just need two people? What, Why was the limit set to two? And the experience that Woody had uh, a while back was he worked with a team where they just took a group of people and they put them in front of a single computer and they worked on a single problem as a group day in and day out for well over a year. And he started speaking about the experiences of doing this thing. And slowly as it's made its way around the world, different people have been introduced to it and have taken it in different directions. Uh, my first introduction to mob programming was when I was traveling in the U.S. I attended a uh, Agile regional conference in uh, Utah called Agile Roots. And in attending there, I'd organized to spend uh, two days at a company called Pluralsight. And Pluralsight uh, has these small teams that are, are, are very autonomous in what they're doing. And my expectation of spending my days at Pluralsight was just to pair program with someone. And it's a way that I 
learn and see how different companies do things. When, when I arrived at Pluralsight, they told me we weren't going to pair. We were going to do this thing called mob programming. And essentially, I spent a day with three to four other people working together on a single computer. And it was an absolute blast. It was amazing. And it, it takes a lot of the elements of XP and, and merges them all into one. So uh, feedback, uh, diversity, um, uh, collaboration, those for me are all principles of XP. And they all come out through mob programming. And so, yeah, it's, um, uh, that, that's really interesting that you, that you got sort of introduced to it um, without sort of anticipation. Just suddenly there you, there you are um, working, coding with a group of people something that people I think generally would um, associate with uh, solitary uh, enterprise. Um, and it is fascinating to watch. I, I saw the sort of fast forwarded, a couple of fast forwarded videos of yeah. people, you know, sitting in front Like you, you might have three or four people and then people might come and go even sitting in front of a computer. And I gather there's a timer. So one person is driving as they say um, uh, is one person is sitting at the keyboard and then there's a timer involved and then you so when the timer goes, you switch to whoever's driving. So everybody gets a chance to sit back. Everybody gets a chance to be directly in control. And it's just a very interesting um, process to watch. Um, one question. Oh, so please go ahead if you have something to say. Uh, yeah. So the the mechanics of mob programming are, are very interesting, and I, I think they also evolve as a group evolves. Um, so part of the reason for me writing, getting started with mob programming was to give a, a group of people wanting to experiment with the practice, a formula to start out with, but the intention wasn't to define that as the only way to do mob programming. And in fact, uh, I think it's really important that, um, teams embrace this concept of experimentation and exploration. And so start out with the formula of having time-lapsed intervals, rotating the, the keyboard around, um, but, but that's not the only way to do it. There, there are lots of valid ways of mobbing without keeping to that formula. But th thanks for um, just introducing that video, that video was an example of the first team I was in, how we did my programming. And we worked that way for over a year. And there's some very real benefits to, to working that way. And um, when one is doing mob programming, I imagine that that's part of the day. And that part of the day is also still spent alone um, coding. Is that correct? So it's not... It's not the, the entire coding for the entire project is done in a mob style. Yeah, so I think it would be unfair to say, uh, to be dogmatic about it and say there's only one way of developing software and that you should apply that way all the time. I, th I think one of the challenges we have is there, there's very little research in when it's appropriate to do one thing over another. And so because we don't have that as a thing out there in academia, um, we we end up relying on our gut, which, which is fine. I, I think that 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 can be appropriate. Um, and so the kind of what I've seen in the teams that I've mobbed with is they they find a balance. Um, typically, in the first team that I mobbed in, um, we 
we mobbed a lot. Uh, I would say we could average six hours a day mob programming and, and quite realistically it would be the majority of the way we would code. Although we would still have breakaways where people would pair or where they would work on their own and have a, have a review and, and that's that's a-okay. In, in the team that I'm in currently, um, we, we probably mob about 50% of the time. Um, the thing that I'm interested in when I look at our team working is are we collaborating and are we collaborating in appropriate ways? And um, whether that is mobbing or pairing or uh, working on your own and getting feedback, um, I'm fine for that to be decided based on the problem you're solving at hand. I think one of the um, first questions someone who's you know being introduced to mob programming for the first time, especially like a product owner or team leader might ask is, what do you do about conflict? Um, you know, because if, if someone's sitting there and they've got the keyboard and someone else is disagreeing with them and it's a step that, you know, has two paths that diverge in a wood, as it were, how do you decide in the moment to deal with that conflict? Is it something that, do you take a break? Do you just use common sense? Are there, are there things you've learned about resolving those kinds of issues in that very particular context? <laughs> Yeah, so conflict conflict is it can often be intensified in a mob, and um, I've I've seen people that are really bad at handling conflict, and I've seen people that are really good at handling conflict. Um, how do we handle conflict in the teams that uh, I've worked in? Well, you know that conflict always has always been there. If, if you're in a team that doesn't mob, but you work on your own. Uh, you're typically still working in a shared code base. And what you'll find is that there are different styles that different people are using. And if they can't find alignment or agreement, they decide to ring fence it. So one person owns a certain area of the code base, another person owns a, another area, and never the two shall meet. And I think that that's very dangerous. Um, you, you're setting yourself up for varying standards. You're setting yourself up for key man dependencies. You, you, you're setting yourself up for a lot of pain. So, so mob programming really brings that conflict out. But that the, those differences were always there. Um, it's just mob programming is is making it something that you need to deal with. And how do you deal appropriately with conflict? Well, I, I think you got to gauge what matters and what doesn't. Some things are, are purely opinionated and, and are really, for me, just stylistic choices. Uh, certain syntax, um, really, there is no performance improvement. There is no difference in readability. There is, it, it's just a preference. And, and in those situations, I'm, I'm willing to um, go with what the group wants to go with or what we decide. Uh, as a group, we're going to to, to follow. The, the other differences that are maybe more important, where there are varying opinions, and I think it's useful to explore all of them. You know, one of the benefits of mob programming is it in, introduces diversity. And we know that when there is diversity in solving a problem, the the solution you produce is, is more robust. And to embrace that diversity and to, to listen to, to what people are saying when they don't agree with you and to really discuss it, 
um, can be valuable because you're going to end up with a better solution. So I don't, I don't have a specific formula for resolving conflict. I do encourage people to see each other as people first, to, to realize that we are human, we, we have feelings, and we, we need to treat and talk to each other in a, a kind and respectful way, but that we should also be listening to, to everybody's opinions and be exploring them. And often that means let's try this way and see how that works, and I'm happy to go with uh, where you want to go, and then we can reevaluate at the end. Um, and how do you set up the space? What um, if someone wants to say do an experiment, and you you recommend um, getting over the hurdle of introducing mob programming? Two teams can um, include representing what you're doing genuinely as an experiment, because then people understand that things can change as you go along, or you might even abandon it. But if if I'm say thinking about doing mob programming with my team, how do I decide how to set up the space where the mob programming will happen? Yeah. Um, so we, we talk about this concept of psychological safety and psychological safety seems to, uh, at least in the material that I'm reading lately, seems to be coming back into focus. And really what it is, is creating a safe environment where, where people can make themselves vulnerable, can say, I don't know, or I think and know that there aren't um, long-term judgments that are going to be made against them just because they uh, don't have a solid solution. So with mob programming, um, when I look at teams starting out, I often talk about finding a safe place to start. And in the traditional kind of company environment, often that safe place is not in the team area because we have these open space offices where uh, the, the team next to you can hear what's going on and, and, and that can be quite a vulnerable place to work. So I often recommend that when a mob starts out, they want to they go into a place where they're feeling comfortable and often that's a, a room away from everybody else where it's just the mob dealing with what the mob needs to deal with. And once you've got that going for a while and you can create that trust and that safe space, then bring that back into your work environment. So bring, bring, bring the team back to where they should be working because they've gotten over the vulnerabilities that they needed to, to, to actually work together. And um, distinct from the space that one chooses, like a separate meeting room, if that's all you've got available or something like that, you also yep. talk about the importance of uh, physical layout. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of people who do software development uh, have a particular interest in physical layout, which, by which one can mean things like um, what size monitors are you using, what configuration, things like that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, you know, from listening to you, you would advocate people thinking about what they're doing and doing the best things for them. But, for example, is should people be sitting down? Should people be standing up? Should you have a giant monitor? Should you have three small ones? Things like that. If you could just talk yeah. a little bit about that. Sure. So, so we've experimented with different setups. Um, and in fact, the, when, when I started my programming in uh, my first team, we, we needed to prove that the practice worked before we were going to invest time in the equipment. And so I ended up um, taking my home uh, screen to work. I had a at the time, it was big, a big 40-inch screen. Uh, 
and we set up in the office space and we stood around it. Um, since then, we have worked with two 60-inch large screens next to each other with a smaller screen on a timer and that that's worked really, really well, where everybody can see the code comfortably and yet not have people on top of each other. Um, one, one of the challenges I've seen is people try mob programming, but they try it in their normal development space where they've got a, a smaller screen, like a 24-inch screen, and, and practically to have three or four people around that can be very um, uncomfortable because you're just in each other's in each other's space. So you want people to to have enough space to to feel like they're in a comfortable situation. You also want them from wherever they are uh, sitting or standing to be able to see the code that's being written. Um, that that is for me the most important thing. And the bigger and the clearer that is, the better. Now, whether that is one very large screen or three semi-large screens, we, we've played around with different ones, and it depends on the team and the environment they have. I would be going as high-definition screen as possible and as large as uh, possible that your budget can support. Um, some of the best times that we've had is when people can walk up to the screen and point at the code and go, over here, this is what I'm talking about. What, what's going on over here? And that, that makes it a very hands-on, very immersive experience. Um, I'm going to ask a very in-the-weeds question, and then I'm going to ask a from 30,000 feet question. So sure. just prefacing this one with the fact that something bigger picture is coming after. Um, one of the things that I found um, really interesting in your book was talking about keyboard shortcuts. And to those who are unfamiliar with the world of software development or financial modeling and things like that. One of the first rules of, you know, fight club is don't take your hands off the keyboard. Um, if you're taking your hands, if you're working in Excel or if you're working in coding and you're taking your hands off the keyboard, uh, you, you know, as one person I heard once put it, you've already lost. Um, and so, and often what happens is we all know with things like this, where you're doing them all the time, you know, the, the shortcuts that you use become second nature. You know, when I, I'm by no means an expert and I'm not a coder myself, I can do some, but when I use, I use Emacs for a lot of things. And I mean, my fingers know things about Emacs that I do not know myself. Um, and I was wondering how you would suggest dealing with that issue where you might get a bunch of, you know, coders who've got all these instincts, you know, all the way down uh, built in to their typing, um, how do you decide what to do if you're all using a shared editor? Yeah. Um, so uh, when you start talking about tooling, you get people really, really passionate and fired up. Um, I'm a I'm a Vim fan, and hearing that you're an Emacs user, uh, that almost meant that this was the end of the conversation. Um, but Joking aside, um, tooling is important. You know, we, we've invested, uh, as a, a professional, I've invested a lot of time in understanding my tools of preference and in being efficient and, and quick at it. And one of the challenges of mob programming is you have this shared development environment, and that might mean that you might not have the ideal tools of your preference. 
Now, I always think it's good to have a discussion about what tools we're going to use when when we mob and and what our setup of an environment is going to be. And the Depending on the tools, it is possible that you can have multiple editors working on the same code base and as different people take the keyboard that um, you switch to their editor of choice and they carry on. Often that's not possible though. And in that situation, you do need to get to a common agreement. So in the team that I'm in right now, um, I'm the well, I was the only person that did Vim. I've slowly converted one other person across to Vim, but there's another four or five people that I need to get to see the light. And so when we mob, I don't use Vim because it is just too hard for anybody else to work with. Um, I do have a set of agreed keyboard shortcuts that we could standardize on that we use and we, we have those shortcuts printed out by the keyboard and muscle memory is an amazing thing. You do it a couple times and suddenly your fingers start to remember it and you can you can relearn it. So I, I, I encourage trying to create an environment where, where people can use their different shortcuts but it, you, you've got to be willing to let go of a few things for the greater good of the mob. Oh, thanks for that. That's a very clear answer and um, it is... I mean, I, you know, I, I understand I've never been a part of such a battle, but I do understand the importance of tooling to people who, you know, use these tools all day long and, um, you know, connecting it to my next question from 30,000 feet, you know, um, software is behind everything nowadays. Um, uh, and it's going to be, you know, behind everything plus one going forward. Um, and the way we're, you know, the way software is developed is actually, really important for um everything we do in our lives and you only need to see how important a calamity like the um healthcare.gov scandal in the states and other things like that where you know how software is built is actually really important and it's these technical matters matter as much as you know should a should a surgeon be washing his hands or her hands in advance of surgery or not and we're still in the should you wash your hands you know, sort of stage, I would say, um, well, not, no, that's an exaggeration, but, you know, we're still early on if you consider the long arc of history in, uh, you know, understanding, uh, how software development should be done and what best practices should be done. So, and related to that, um, is the question of co-location versus remote work. And obviously, you know, this discussion in your book are about mob programming and mob programming is something that you do, but this is actually a really big question about, software development and, you know, various, uh, companies answer it in their own way. Uh, Apple, you know, built its ring. Um, they made a bet that people should be together. Um, you know, other companies, uh, have done the same thing. Um, if you were, so my question to you would be, imagine the ring hasn't been built yet. Um, uh, this is Apple's new fancy headquarters for those who aren't aware. Um, and, uh, imagine, um, you're the CEO of Apple right now. Um, what would you decide if you had to, about this, would you say, you know, 100%, just putting this question starkly, 100% remote, 100%, you've got to do the commute and you've got to come to the office or some blend of those two things? Yeah. So this is a, a good question. And, and for me, it 
it's never been a question of co-location. It's been a question of collaboration. Um, essentially, I don't care whether you're here or, or, or remote if I can collaborate with you just as effectively. Um, my experience right now is that co-location just increases the fidelity of the experience. And I found that co-location leads to, to better collaboration. Uh, but I think that we are at an, a very interesting time in terms of technology that there are, um, for instance, uh, HoloLens, um, Oculus Rift, all of these devices that are giving us these augmented reality or, or um, almost virtually near world experiences, maybe, that, maybe that's going to change how we collaborate effectively and so maybe remote work will will have a big breakthrough where that experience is still the same um if if i was starting a company right now and i wanted to get something out really uh quickly and collaboration was important i would probably still be pushing co-location um that said People have lives and there are challenges in getting talent uh, all in one place. And so there is an argument to say, well, we will uh, have a reduced experience of uh, collaboration, but we will have a wider pool of people that we can use at a certain level. And so that could be an argument um, on the other side. And I think it really depends. I think what I have learned is a, the worst experience is mixing both. So the worst experience is when you take a team and some are co-located and some are remote and you have this quasi co-located remote where you're trying to have face-to-face -face conversations but you're always Skyping somebody in and you never know where they're at. Um, and so my advice would be pick one or the other but um, – I'm very wary of mixing both within a within a high functioning team that has got to work at a, a high pace because it just becomes extremely hard to maintain both at the same time. Yeah, and as I understand it, one of the problems with a mixed approach where some people are always co-located and some people are always remote. I think this is my colleague Peter who had this said this, but he had an experience where he was in a situation like that. And you know, one thing that happens is there ends up being an in-group uh, yep. that knows each other and, you know, life is like high school for the, you know, no matter how old you get or what you're doing and there's an in-group and there's an out-group and, um, uh, you know, that that's just a natural development from people being around each other and not around others. Absolutely. Um, and typically what you'll find is that, uh, or at least my experience is that in-group would generally be the people together because they're having conversations that the people remote don't get to have and they're building those relationships. Um, so for me, the important thing is just being really conscious of how teams work and and being really intentional about how you do things so that you're equally connected with everybody in your team. Um, because the worst place to be is to feel that you're isolated or that you're the out person and that you're not being valued or appreciated. Um, going back, uh, switching subjects, but going back to the um, topic of uh, what tools one uses to do one's work, um, 
I was wondering just before we end the interview, if you could talk a little bit about why you chose to write your book using me. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have, I have never attempted to write a book before. And um, what I have done in the past is I, I was a fairly regular blogger where I would post one or two postings a month. If I was on a good wicket, I would be doing four or five. And with mob programming, because it was such an emergent thing, there wasn't a lot of material out there. Um, there was um, Woody's book. Um, there, there was maybe one or two other writings out there, but it was really a, a new topic. And because of the experiences and the impact that it had on the software that I've been involved in creating, I, I didn't want teams to make the same mistakes that I had made. I, I really wanted mob programming to, for people to have a great experience. And in speaking to other teams that have tried it out, there were a couple things that we had figured out that they hadn't. So the idea behind uh, writing the book was really to help teams starting out in, a, in an environment that I could relate to. Now, well, why did I do it through Lean Pub? Well, Lean software in general has been the way that I've made software for a long time. So I, I want uh, very small, uh, quick feedback loops. And I found that the concept of Lean Pub of being able to iterate very, very quickly and increment and get something out and get quick feedback was very appealing to me. That said, I have no, I had no idea of how much work is involved in in writing a book, and uh, I have absolute admiration to um, people that have done this before. It it is um, a very addictive thing, uh, but it's also very very work intensive, um, and and something. Uh, that if I hadn't had those feedback loops from, uh, through Lean Pub, I probably would have given up halfway. Um, whereas what happened with me is I, I wrote the the first run of it and uh, I sent it out. I got some feedback from it, um, and I felt like I'd kind of let down everybody and that I had to refactor and improve, and and that's been the driver um, of it going up to now. Now, the experience of publishing to be able to do that, uh, having, um, I, I linked it up through GitHub. So I do a commit into GitHub and I work in, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but the Lean, Lean Pub flavored Markdown or Mar, uh, is it yeah. Markow? Markdown, no, that's right. Oh, and then there's Markua as well. Markua, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, which I think you guys um, are working on, but it um, it really appealed to me and appealed to my workflow. It allowed me to to use the editors that I liked, which was a editor like them, and be able to get a PDF just with a click of a button, and that that worked really really well for me. And how have you been managing feedback? Do you? Give, I mean, I know you give out your email address and your, your profile on LeanPub. Um, do, you, do you invite feedback explicitly? Yeah, that's something that a lot of LeanPub authors do, for example, in the introduction to their book. Yep. Yeah, so I, I would love to get 
more feedback um, specifically. I, I've received feedback, but once or twice it's it's been a little frustrating. Uh, maybe somebody didn't understand something or they, they had a negative experience and they were like, well, I don't agree with X. Um, and then I never hear back from them. And, and really what I'm, I'm wanting is to dig a little deeper into their world and where they're coming from so that I can give something that is, is going to um, be applicable in multiple places. So the ideal feedback for me is via email um, and then having an engagement to find out other people's experiences because this is a relatively new field. And so I'm by no means the the know-all of it all. Um, and I think that there are situations I just haven't thought of um, that I'd love to understand. But in general, the, the feedback through LeanPub has been great and it's been via email. I think I uh, have my Twitter handle uh, in the beginning of the book. And so I've occasionally gotten feedback via that, which has been great. That's kind of been the place that I engage the most. That's really fascinating. Um, one of the um, things that people often, that authors often say they would like is more community, you know, more features and more of a structure around community. Um, I've always seen that as the way I think it is conventionally seen in the world of books where, you know, readers enjoy putting up their profiles and then growing communities around certain genres or authors where the readers talk to each other. Um, and, you know, one of the things we like to encourage at LeanPub is to have the readers talk to the author. Um, and of course, you know, since time immemorial, the bio or profile of the author is something that's really appealing to the reader. But I think you're the first person to make such a straightforward and practical claim about the value of the author having some understanding of the reader's bio, because if they're giving you advice or commentary, you know, if they voluntarily can let someone know a little bit where they're coming from, maybe like with a profile that then that can help the author to process the nature of the complaint or suggestion that's coming at them and how best to address it. So thanks for that. That's, um, that's actually really interesting that's going to be something that's very interesting for us to, to think about when we get, you know, more focused on community and things like that. Um, well, thanks a lot, uh, for, uh, doing this podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. It was a really interesting discussion. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to say before I go, thanks for, thanks for being a lean pub author. Pleasure. It's been uh, a lot of fun. Thanks, Lynn.